Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. I love being here together for family gathers. It's so great to have everybody in the room. Uh, if you are watching online, probably the most significant thing you're missing right now is this sound, which I just love. Thank you for doing that today. <laughs> Sarcasm. Um, <laughs> just saying. Just saying. Um, an elementary school student was drawing a picture in class one day, and a very curious teacher walked over and kind of peeked over their so- shoulder and said, hey, what is it that you're drawing there? And the student looked up and said, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus. And the teacher politely said, well, that's going to be a little bit difficult because nobody exactly knows what Jesus looked like. And the child said, well, they will when I'm done drawing this picture. (laughs) Which I just love the confidence of that child. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what Jesus looked like while he was here on earth? Okay, when you walked in, you should have gotten a piece of paper. This is the participation part of the service. And uh, on the right side of this, you'll see uh, the one with the frames. On the right side, I want you to draw a picture, kind of your image of Jesus. Now, some of you are afraid because you're like, I don't draw very well. Don't you worry. Once I get started, I'll make you feel right at ease. (laughs) So usually we think that, uh, you know, there's some long hair going on here and... um, Jesus is smiling because he loves family gathers. Woohoo! But he has a beard, right? He's got a beard, and um, he's always in some kind of robe because that's, that's how he rolls. And we're just going to, he's going to be giving us the thumbs up here right now. As a matter of fact, double thumbs up. And what's he wearing? Jesus sandals, right? We know he's wearing Jesus sandals. And what's he missing? Sash. He's missing legs, thank you. (laughs) He's missing a sash, right? He always seems to be wearing a sash. Now, if you want, you can add some happy little trees. Remember, there's no mistakes, just happy accidents. Some happy little birds up here. Okay, how'd you do? Show your neighbor your amazing picture of Jesus. And as you see in my picture, the head of Jesus is half his body size. Not quite an accurate depiction, not, not a great image of Jesus here, but we probably all have completely different pictures, even though we have some of the same elements. We're going to come back to that. We're kicking off a new series called Imago Jesus, and Imago just means image, the image of Jesus. All of us are created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that. And what that means is we have inherent dignity and value. It means that we have the ability to be in relationship. It means we have the ability to reason. It means that we can use our effort and our creativity to make the world a better place. Oftentimes, kings of old would make images of themselves in the form of statues or idols. But God, the one true king, made images of himself in the form of humans, us. But we don't always do a great job imaging God. We don't always do a great job looking like Jesus looked. So Jesus came 
as the Son of God, and Colossians chapter 1 tells us that he is the visible image of the invisible God. He came to redeem us, and he came to redeem the image of God so that we can look like Jesus looked. And that doesn't mean like this, thankfully. That doesn't mean we have to wear a sash. Sashes went out. Now, you can wear Jesus sandals all you want, whatever works for you. It's not that we look like him. It's that we follow his example. We follow the example of Jesus. And we're told that in scripture. Jesus says this, as a matter of fact, in John 13. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, he is your example. He's saying, Jesus is your example. And you must follow in his steps. You see, the way we image Jesus is we follow his example. Example just means a pattern, a copy, a model. And literally, what it means in the Greek language, literally it means that if you had a picture, we can get rid of this one. If you had a picture, then you could place something over it and trace around it. Now, you guys can do this as well. If you fold that piece of paper in half, you should be able to use the other frame and trace the image of Jesus on the other side of this. Now, the reason that this is important is because it gives us some parameters. It makes sure that Jesus is, is going to, well, have legs, first of all, and make sure he doesn't have a big Charlie Brown head. But it's going to make sure that we're kind of all on the same page so that we're all imaging Jesus in somewhat the same manner. Now, the beauty of this is we have an outline that guides us, but it also means that we can color it however we want so that no two pictures are going to be exactly the same. And we're going to look in this series. That's why we study scripture. We're going to study in this series the image of Jesus. We want to do this correctly so we can live like he lived so we can do the things that he did. And so we're going to see how Jesus was compassionate and how he welcomed children and how he saw value in people and how he was creative. We want to follow the example of Jesus. So now we should kind of all be on the same page in that picture. We should all have the same outline and then we can kind of work it differently. Now, as we talk about what it means to image Jesus, today we're going to talk about forgiveness. We want to forgive the way that Jesus forgave. Our, our big idea today is just this. Forgiveness is the giving and receiving of life. When we live lives where we engage in forgiveness, we are giving life to other people, but we are also receiving life ourselves. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Jesus is about to tell a parable. He's about to tell a story, but it begins with a question from Peter. Verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Peter comes and he asks a good question. His answer is wrong, but I think his heart's in the right place. You see, the rabbis had decided that you would forgive someone up to three times for one offense, and then that was it. They were done. So Peter took that three, and he doubled it, and then he added one so he looked extra spiritual. 
And he comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, seven times? And Jesus says, no, 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 70 times seven. And Jesus says that number as just a big number. He's not asking us to like keep calculating things. He's not saying keep tabs. You know, hey, listen, you're at 489, one more and you're done. You're out. Jesus is trying to do away with calculations altogether. What he's saying is we need to be a people who forgive without limits because that's how we have been forgiven. And so then he tells this story, this parable, and this morning we're going to watch the parable. Our grade school students have been watching a series of videos, and this is one in that series. And in it, we're going to see a king. That king is Jesus. We're going to see servant number one. He's not the good guy, but that's us. And we're going to see servant number two at the end of that story. And uh, when Jesus shows up at the beginning, feel free to say hey yo to him as he says it to us. Stories of the Bible. The parable of the unforgiving servant. This is Jesus. Heyo! Who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. One day, Jesus was talking with his disciples and teaching them when Peter asked, Um, Gira? How often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus said, No, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Then Jesus told a parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to get his money back that he had let his servants borrow. While the king was doing this, one of the servants who owed him a million dollars was brought in. One million dollars, please? The servant couldn't pay, so the king ordered that he be sold, along with his family and everything he owned, to pay the debt. Wait, please! But the servant begged the king, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his king was filled with pity for him, and he let him go and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Uh, hi? Come here, you. He grabbed him and demanded that he pay him back immediately. Oh, wait, please! His fellow servant begged for a little more time. He said, be patient with me and I will pay it. No! But the servant wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be punished until he had paid all that he owed. Jesus then said, That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. See, to really understand this parable, we need to understand the magnitude of the debt. The video said that the first servant owed a million dollars. Scripture tells us that it was 10,000 talents. Now, talent was the largest unit of currency back then. 10,000 was the largest common number of the day as well. 
And usually if someone worked really hard, they could earn a talent in a year. So this is kind of a way of saying 10,000 years worth of wages. It's, it's Jesus saying like a gazillion dollars. He's just throwing out this huge, huge number because it signified a debt that couldn't be repaid. As a matter of fact, Jesus stated a sum so high that even if this was the emperor of Rome, it would be a significant amount of money. And honestly, I've read this parable several times and I always read it and wonder how that first servant kind of accrued such a significant debt. I have no idea because I always read it with like the fact that they were a butler or a cook or a groundskeeper and I didn't know if they were just bumming money or if they kept losing at cards or I have no idea. Like how do you get a debt so absolutely significant? But when you read this story, it's probably better understood that this servant was the overseer of a large province within the kingdom and he was responsible for the taxes of that kingdom. He was responsible to bring those taxes back to the king. So the loss of this, this debt would be a huge weight on his shoulders. Oh my goodness, I have to go before the king and say that I don't have this tax money. And it would also be significant for the kingdom. It would put the kingdom in jeopardy and the king would take quite an offense to this because it would be the king's money. Caesar paid for everything out of his own personal bank account because all of the tax money came to him and then he would pass it out to everybody else and he looked like the good guy. So for the king to absorb this debt, this this is a big deal. Forgiveness of something this size that puts the king and the kingdom in jeopardy is a big deal. The king could have seized the man and his family and everything he owned and sold it all to try and recoup some of it. But instead, he absorbs the debt. So servant number one no longer has this incredible weight hanging over him. And I just want to pause here for a minute. Before we go on in the service, let's not get past this too quickly. I want us to remember that there is forgiveness, that we serve a God who forgives. Our sin caused a debt that could not be repaid by us. But when we repent, we can receive forgiveness. We do not have to live under this crushing weight all of the time. I read an article in The Atlantic uh, several weeks ago that talked about the most indebted man in the world. His name is Jerome Kerville, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And through computer hacking and fraudulent trading, he racked up $73 billion in unauthorized trades. So he finds a lot of money. He finally gets busted and he gets thrown in prison and all that money goes away. But when he gets released from prison three years later, he gets a fine, $6.3 billion. And they tell him, you'll never make any more money than this amount. You can never have this amount of possessions or whatever. And we're going to garnish your paycheck every time you get one, which just cracked me up because that's like 5,000 years worth of paychecks that you're garnishing. I don't understand that kind of punishment. But he has to live under this weight for the rest of his life. There's no way he's going to repay $6.3 billion. For the rest of his life, that will hang over his head which is a terrible way to live. And we do not have to live that way. We don't have to live with that hanging over our heads. We have forgiveness. Our incredible debt has been forgiven. And so Jesus, by the telling of this parable, is saying, because you have been forgiven so much, you need to be a people that forgive others. If we want to trace our lives around Jesus, then we need to be a people who give forgiveness. 
You see, in the giving and receiving of forgiveness is the giving and receiving of life. This is a big deal. It's not optional. Luke chapter 6 says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Matthew chapter 6, if we forgive, we'll be forgiven. If we refuse, we will not be. And so we want to lean in to forgiveness. We want to see how King Jesus did it so that we can trace our lives so that we can give and receive life. So verse 27 of chapter 18 gives us three things. It says, the master was filled with pity for him. He released him and he forgave his debt. And I just want to talk about those three things real quick as a way that we can trace forgiveness in our lives. First, it says the king was filled with pity. Now, I know when we read pity, sometimes we think that that's condescending. Pity seems condescending to me, at least. It seems like, oh, I'm above you. Oh, that's too bad. But really what this means is filled with compassion. It's, it's this movement in your gut. It's having a gut feeling. And it's always used in the Gospels of Jesus when he saw a need and he met the need. And so the first thing the king did was he compassionately saw the servant. We compassionately see people as valuable. We see people as made in the image of God. But we don't always do that, especially when we're wronged. When we're wronged, we reduce that person to the wrong thing that they did to us and nothing else. If you've been cheated by somebody, that person is a cheater. If somebody lies to you, that person is a liar, nothing else. Now, when we do something bad, it's a different story, right? That person's a liar. But when I lie, well, it's complicated. You know, there's extenuating circumstances. And if you were in my shoes, you probably would have told the same lie. And we write them out to be the bad guy while we can still be the good guy somehow in our own story. One theologian puts it this way. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We put them in that camp, but we still remain in this camp. And so this compassion is allowing ourselves to identify with the person who's wronged us, to feel what they feel. We remind ourselves how much we have in common with that person, that we're both in the image of God, that we both are weak, that we both fail, that we both are in need of grace and forgiveness. And so we want to see people compassionately people that have value. And then that will lead us to the second step. You see, the king took pity, but the king also forgave the debt. Now, maybe immediately something in you bristles at this. Because I know that there are some of you in this room who have walked through some really traumatic experiences. And when forgiveness is talked about on the platform, just something rises up in you. Because you feel like forgiveness means like, oh, well, then I just have to kind of open the doors and take away the boundaries. And that's not what it means. Sometimes forgiveness means that we draw tighter boundaries. You can still have boundaries and forgive. Forgiveness doesn't minimize or diminish the offense. There's a difference between forgiveness and condoning. Forgiveness doesn't erase the past, but it does pave the way for a better future. Forgiveness is about more freedom. Forgiveness is about more life. And so we don't pretend that the thing didn't happen. We don't shrug it off and just heroically walk forward. We acknowledge what happened, but forgiveness is canceling the debt. Oftentimes, it's absorbing the debt. You see. 
When we're wronged, a transaction takes place. We are diminished. There's a debt and someone needs to pay. If I ran out there and I grabbed the rest of your fruit snacks and I came up on stage and I just unashamedly ate them in front of you, you would think I was a jerk. And the transaction would be that you were wronged and diminished and somebody's got to pay. Now, you could absorb that debt and just be like, that's fine. I didn't like those fruit snacks anyway. Or I could run and get you more fruit snacks and make restitution and and that could happen and we could figure out that way. But it's not always that easy. You see, many times the debt is the result of, of harsh words or broken promises or broken relationships, things that can't be fixed with, with stuff or, or money. And so resentment builds and anger boils in us. This fire begins to burn and somebody, somebody's got to pay. The only way this is going to be made right is if somebody pays. And so we want people to pay. We want that person to pay. And how do we do that? How do we make people pay? Well, insults. We can insult them. We can take shots at them. We can withdraw from their lives. We can gossip about them. Hey, let me warn you about that person. Sometimes in Christian circles, we share prayer requests. Like, hey, guys, can we just stop and pray for Steve Fowler for a minute? Because so many times he throws really nice pastors under the bus when he preaches and We just know that that's not right, so we just want to pray for that. We can rejoice when things go wrong for people. I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to stand back and hope that somebody else does something mean to that person so I can still be self-righteous and they can still suffer. It's not a right thought, but sometimes I think that. And you know what? When pain is inflicted on that person, when it's that person who's hurt us, we feel better. Something in us feels better because we feel like that debt's going down just a little bit because they get what they deserved. And initially, this seems to work. Slowly, we feel like this pain and this debt is going away. But this does not lead to freedom. This does not soften our hearts. As a matter of fact, it hardens our hearts. This will change us when we live this way we will end up in bondage. A lot of theologians think that that's why the first servant ends up in prison, that it's not just physical, that it's this this other kind of prison as well. And so it's, it's kind of equated to like, if you're mad at someone and you're holding a hot coal in your hand, waiting to throw it at them, it's just burning you. It's not hurting them. So how do we cancel the debt? Well, we refuse to punish people. We refuse to do the things that we just talked about. We truly pray for them. We speak kindly of them. We rejoice when good things happen. We bless them. In this way, we absorb the debt. When I was seven years old, I broke my brother's favorite Christmas present on Christmas Day. Not a good day. He got this gift here. It was called Tin Can Alley. And it was just a rifle that shot a beam of light. And if it hit the target, it would knock the can off the top. And it was just so much fun. And we played with it all morning. And then I started chasing him around the house with the gun like boys do. And instead of running through the doorway holding the gun this way, I ran through the doorway holding the gun this way. And both edges caught the door frame. And I ran through. And it just shattered this thing. 
And I was like, whoops. Yeah, that's exactly how he felt. <clears throat> and he didn't like it, obviously. But he extended forgiveness. It's okay. I forgive you. And the loss was still there. And quite honestly, the story was still there year after year after year. <laughs> so much so that several years ago, I just went online and bought him a new one so we could end the thing. <laughs> but he, he absorbed the debt. There was nothing I could do as a seven-year-old to repay him to do anything. And so he absorbed it and he offered forgiveness. And when we respond this way, when we refuse to be revengeful, there's less to fuel our anger and the fire in us starts to go out. And this can take time, but the debt will diminish. We will experience freedom. This is forgiveness. Our hearts begin to soften rather than harden. And so in the giving of this forgiveness, we are also receiving life. We're giving life and we are receiving life. You see, the king had compassion. He took pity. The king forgave. And then lastly, the king released him. He let him go. He set him free. Literally, it's, it's this idea that he's no longer under the contract, this huge weight that was bearing down on him, knowing that he had to go before the king and say, all of this money of yours is gone. The king just says, okay, you're released. That's it. It's this idea of us saying, I'm, I'm not going to hold it over you. I'm not going to bring it up again to shame you. Or I'm not going to bring it up again to to exert power over you or to guilt you, I'm going to let it go. And, and we can bristle at that too. Doesn't the king care about justice? Doesn't the king care about truth and restitution? Absolutely the king does. Justice will be served, just not by us. That's not our job. I read this tweet a few weeks ago. It says this, if we pursue justice before forgiveness, it ends up being vengeance. Whoo. That'll preach. We don't have time to preach all that. And maybe that's just what you need to chew on today. Maybe you feel like you've been pursuing justice, but you haven't forgiven that person. And it just it feels a lot like vengeance. You see, we serve a king who has compassion and who forgives and who releases us from that debt. So what did this first servant do after this? After his insurmountable debt is forgiven, he ran out and he bought all the fruit snacks that he could and he threw a huge party and his heart grew three sizes that day. <laughs> Not what happened, is it? Kind of crazy to think. The servant leaves that amazing experience. He finds this other servant that owes him just a few bucks, like one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he had before. And he begins to choke the life out of him. The first servant's life has just been given back to him, and he chooses vengeance. He uses his freedom to end up in bondage again, which is crazy. And Jesus is telling a story with this kind of extreme, so it sinks into us because that's oftentimes who we are. We've been forgiven of so much, and yet we refuse to forgive things that are so small. You see, this servant is acting like a king and a judge, but we need to trace our lives around the king who acts like a servant, King Jesus. And so in closing, I would just say that that's what we need to do. For some of you in the room, you just need to receive forgiveness. 
We talk about the cross every weekend in service. And the cross is just a place where you go and surrender your life to Christ. And maybe you've never done that. And maybe you feel like you're just living under this weight. We have a king who offers forgiveness. Our king, even on the cross, was offering forgiveness. And that weight can be removed. Maybe you've surrendered to Jesus, but you still are forgiven. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You just receive it. And when we feel like, ah, but you don't know what I did, or, or my sins are too big, bigger than the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus was more than enough for our sin. And so we can receive that. And for the rest of us in the room, for all of us in the room, we need to trace our lives around King Jesus in the area of forgiveness by showing compassion to people, by seeing people as valuable, by forgiving, and by releasing them from these things. Some people think forgiveness is weakness, but there's tremendous strength in this forgiveness. Tremendous strength. And as we give forgiveness, we are giving life. And as we give forgiveness, we are also receiving life and imaging our king. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this story in your word. Jesus, we thank you for the forgiveness that's offered to us. And I just pray that we would be a people who just readily and quickly receive that forgiveness. Help us to have short accounts with you, to repent quickly, but also to just receive. And Jesus, forgive us for when we refuse to forgive other people. Increase our compassion. Increase our courage. Make us a people who understand what forgiveness is and to image you in it. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.